Welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. In the last episode, we discussed what companies have to do to hire foreign workers. In this episode, Mira Takrar joins Peter Edelman, Diana Okanachoff, and I, Steve Murins, to discuss the issue of compliance in the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and the International Mobility Program. What steps does the Canadian government take to prevent the exploitation of foreign workers and maintain the integrity of Canada's foreign worker programs? What challenges does the government face in doing so? I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Steve Murins. I'm here with Peter Edelman, Diana Okanachoff, and we're joined again by Mira Takrar, who joined us last week or our last episode to discuss uh, an introduction to the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and LMIA's Labor Market Impact Assessments. This is part two of the uh, Temporary Foreign Worker little series, I guess, on as we talked about. Uh, compliance in the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, protecting foreign workers from abuse. Uh, the BC government has recently introduced legislation designed to create a provincial, uh, I guess, supplement or a provincial equivalent to what goes on on the federal level regarding protecting foreign workers. And all of us have uh, interacted or experienced foreign worker protection issues in different capacities. So Deanna, why don't we uh, get the ball rolling with you regarding uh, what you've seen on the employee side regarding some of the uh, abuses or issues that vulnerable or non-vulnerable foreign workers face uh, that you've seen. Sure. Um, my background, of course, comes from the not-for-profit sector and working um generally with caregivers, but also just um, the so-called low-skilled and um, generally low-wage earning employees. And so it really runs the whole gamut there in terms of non-payment of wages, um, a lot of um, some schemes that happen a lot, particularly with the caregivers, is the papering of payment of wages. So it's like issuing of tax receipts, but with no actually actual wages that went along with them. Um, and so I used to do a lot of employment standards complaints along those lines where the paper trail shows that they were paid, but actual no, no actually no wages were, um, were paid to the worker. Um, so seen a lot of that. Um, and um, there's also um, a lot we're seeing because a lot of the low skilled workers are um, are they have the goal of be, being able to apply for permanent residence down the road that that's become the incentive that having the paper that shows that they're being paid um, as per the terms of their contract that's kind of the um, the carrot that's being used by the employer that if you're going to work at this lower salary I'll paper it as though you're being paid at this rate and then you'll pay me back a certain amount so those ones are the really challenging claims to deal with when representing the worker because often they're cash transactions that are happening behind the scenes and uh, you know it's very hard to establish that there has been a non-compliance from the employee standpoint so 
So it's surprising to hear that that goes on. What like? It goes on a lot, I'm afraid to say. And, and I mean, that was certainly my experience when I was in the not-for-profit sector that I saw frequently um, in our drop-in clinics. And it's something that still comes across my, my desk fairly regularly um, just in that community. But And how did those people get introduced to their employers? Were they agencies or...? Um, a whole variety of different ways. Sometimes it's agencies. Um, sometimes... Um, I mean, you'll see that the that the prevailing wage is, is going up pretty steadily and often pretty randomly. Like just for example, prevailing wage for caregivers in the lower mainland just overnight went from, I think it was 12.75, it went to 14.50 overnight. And for a lot of employers, there's, you know, well, you want me to extend your work permit, I can't go to 14.50 all of a sudden. And so um, for the worker, it's often that they make these concessions or they kind of lose that ability to extend their stay and so people are left in this very vulnerable position where they need that job offer to be able to remain in Canada and advance their plans to bring their family and and immigrate and so they find themselves making these compromises so sometimes they grow out um, these abusive situations grow out of what was at some point a legitimate compliant employment relationship well, I think that's one of the big problems that I think that I've seen in, in the cases that I've dealt with as well is that the pathway to permanent residence is way more valuable to some people For than sure. the job itself. In other that's words, right. they'll do pretty much any job if there's a pathway to permanent residence. Um, and in fact, the pathways to permanent, the jobs are being sold Minimum, sometimes minimum wage jobs are being sold overseas to, for $20,000, $30,000, $40,000. For jobs that may not even exist at all, um, which is some of the frauds that we just in terms of the the consultancy frauds and the recruitment frauds that we've seen, where people are selling jobs for absolutely. Um, or even selling fictional jobs. Well, some of the like when you talk about labor exploitation on the low scale slide. Um, it very quickly descends into human trafficking. I mean, there's no bright line as to where it becomes um, it becomes that, but um, but you know, it um, at some point uh, there are cases where there's like um, true and utter labor exploitation for um, often often as Peter says, with the overall goal of being this is a sacrifice that I make with the end goal of being able to at least regularize my status as a permanent resident that has served as a very powerful incentive for people and causes a lot of people to put up with a lot of abuse over the years because of what they think they'll be able to earn as a result. And so what is, do you think, the biggest obstacle to resolving this? Is it the the fear of caregivers to come forward because they'll lose their status? Well, if you're asking me, yeah. <laughs> the problem is the is the way that the the, the the program is designed um, is that it's based on earning permanent residency on the ground in a way that actually creates this dependency on the employer. I think that it's fundamentally built on um, a power imbalance that never can work in favor of the caregiver, which is why um, so many people that have worked closely with caregivers have really argued against this um, this tiered approach to caregivers. If you know that there's this need for caregivers to come into Canada, well, then there needs to be 
permanent residents on arrival so that they don't come in in a state of dependency. And what the department has always said, well, they won't stay in those positions if they're being granted permanent residency on arrival. And so that's always been the tension. The lobby by the employer groups and the the advocacy for the caregivers has always come at a a bit of a disconnect where... um, well, you know, if they were being treated better, then perhaps they would stay in those jobs. Yeah. So, well, I think it's one of the unintended consequences of uh, the shift towards selecting immigrants based on like human capital factors versus letting the private sector indirectly select immigrants mm. through uh, the emphasis on qualifying job offers. Because, as Peter mentioned, on the one hand, you could have, and I mean, most employers, I'm sure, just are treated the way they would treat hiring Canadians and they they don't abuse their foreign workers or result in situations where employees are abused. But there is a component where now the profit motivation and you have people charging for jobs or the other way, what we've uh, what I've seen are employers who maybe have a foreign worker that's not working out. They don't want to just fire them because they'll lose their status and they enter into these weird arrangements of, well, okay, we'll lower your pay from what we've said, or you'll work more hours, which results in non-compliance with what foreign workers were supposed to be paid. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that the process for an employer of getting an LMIA for a low-skilled employee, like it's not, it's not easy. Like they're, they're in deep in terms of the fi- their financial commitment, even um, it takes months and months and months, quite a lot of money to actually get that approval. And so they feel in a way um, that the, they feel that the workers are a bit beholden to them. And in some ways, they actually have expended a fair bit of time and money to get that person here. So if that person is like, hey, I, I want out, um, you know, they're, they're pissed and I, I get it. So um, but there's no doubt in my mind, even though my predisposition is obviously to be an advocate for the caregivers, I also don't I don't debate that the caregiver immigration program has served as a downward driver on the like the prevailing market rate for what that work is worth because um, even now with the rate at fourteen fifty, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a Canadian who would do that as a full time job for fourteen dollars and fifty cents. Like I think the fact that there is the presence of foreign nationals willing to do that job speaks to why the number is as low as it is. Um, so it's it's really I understand where. Um, Service Canada is coming from when they say that if the actual market value of that work is higher, then we can't let the foreign worker program suppress that. And that makes a kind of sense. At the same time, um, doing that might actually kill this this avenue, which I think everyone agrees is a very valuable way. Well, maybe everybody doesn't agree, but for people to be able to come and actually um, have it be an inroad for permanent residents, I think. Yeah. Well, which when you contrast it with the seasonal agricultural worker program, where you know I, I see clients who've been coming here for fifteen years, mm-hmm. uh, doing doing agricultural work, uh, they go back to Mexico mm-hmm. and they come back the year after, and they come back again and again, and there's no pathway. No, exactly. There's there's never a pathway to permanent residence, and so it's uh, which creates a whole different set of room for exploitation, right? Um, sure. And um, and for wages that people would never work for here, right? That, and and that's the whole conditions. point of the program. Yes. In fact, like working conditions and, and wages that, you know, but otherwise you're you're not going to be able to get blueberries for two ninety nine a pound or whatever it is that that's you're paying right. for blueberries um, in stores in Vancouver. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so about starting five-ish years ago, the government implemented a series of both inspections and audits that are now across all foreign worker programs, except I think open work permits, uh, whereby the government will proactively go out and confirm compliance with the foreign worker program. I think their goal is that one out of every four companies will receive an audit or inspection every four years so that every employer theoretically should go through one once every four years. And the government monitors or requests information regarding, um, as Deanna was talking about, working conditions. Were they the same as what was set out in the offer of employment? Were wages the same as what was set out in the offer of employment? Whether the company has an abuse-free workplace policy? Um, and there have been different issues that arise with regards to these audits and inspections. And I can speak a little bit to... Um, well, actually, the, the, an interesting aspect of the law in speaking with employment lawyers, which is that the Employment Standards Act isn't really designed to have the government proactively enforce it. And with the government going in now and requesting to see these uh, pay stubs, timesheets and everything, the companies that may have not been adhering super strictly to the Employment Standards Act are finding themselves caught, even in ways that might seem trivial and arguably not the best use of resources in terms of protecting foreign workers. And maybe, Mira, you've gone through some audits that um, on issues that, well, maybe you can speak to just what the issues were in the audits and where companies that tripped up possibly with regards to the Employment Standards Act. But if I can say, though, even before we get to that, is like, um, I think maybe we should orient the conversation to like, who does this serve? Who does this process serve? Because even, I mean, you're, you can take it to the high skilled sector and see how it plays out in that field. But even when you keep it in the realm of the situation that I'm describing with very egregious um, violations, the inspection, the finding of an egregious violation, still, who does that process serve? Does it actually serve to protect the foreign worker? Because as you said, Steve, it's not like this means that it's going to be for proactive enforcement on an employment standards perspective. It certainly isn't going to mean that there's greater rights given to that foreign worker who's being exploited because, you know, in the end, it actually might mean that they they face more immigration consequences rather than greater relief. So I think maybe that should be the kind of... Uh, so on the lower or on the, the genuine exploitation stuff, I saw that about a month ago, Canada and BC entered into an agreement whereby foreign workers who approach a settlement agency regarding abuse can get a six-month open work permit. I don't know if you've seen, I see you kind of rolling your eyes a bit. Like, has that, I don't know, how has that worked out in practice? Have you seen any utilization of it or? Um, well, I mean, I have a whole sarcastic diatribe on this kind of stuff, but it sort of, it mostly goes back to the same sarcastic diatribe I have about the TRP for victims of human trafficking. What's a TRP? <laughs> What's it? Temporary residence. <laughs> you know, again, I mean, I think that um, that there are these mechanisms that are supposed to be there that are 
set up for providing, you know, compassionate and humanitarian relief um, in various venues. And there's one that's now specifically for those who are, you know, victims of exploitation in the employment setting. And there was the one for victims of human trafficking. Um, My personal view is just that I don't think that immigration has ever proven itself to be the best arbiter of where there is exploitation. And I just, um, I I also just don't think that it's, um, I, I don't think that people are going to the immigration department to say, hey, I'm a victim of exploitation. I mean, this is the same thing we saw with the conditional permanent residence for sponsored spouses, you know, when immigration said, look, if you're being exploited by the spouse who sponsored you and you're, you know, you're saying that you shouldn't be removed from Canada because you are the victim of abuse, come forward and talk to us about it. It's just not the reality. I think it's supposed to be the settlement. They're supposed to go to the settlement. And again, I haven't seen the program in practice. Yeah. Like, do people go to this settlement? Like West Coast, are they? I don't think that the they're an approved agency. agency. They're not an approved agency. No, but I have had settlement workers coming to me, and they don't know anything about how they're supposed to be handling it. At least the settlement workers yeah. that have come to me to ask for advice as to how to navigate this. They, the people that I've spoken to don't have a toolkit. They're coming to me and saying, should we come forward? And so um, I'm trying to advise people as to whether or not to take those people forward. And so, um, but again, it, it's, um, it's just a matter of advising because it's still ultimately, um, you know, that program, first of all, it's set up so that it's supposed to be an interim measure so that they can have a bridging period of time while they get themselves a new work permit. So it's a matter of a few months. So somebody's being exploited. And so maybe you can get this gap period so that they can work while they're finding a new job. But it's not like it fixes anything. I mean, you have a few months, but now you've like it's kind of like you've notified them that you're not working on that old permit that you had. <laughs> so um, it just kind of puts on the pressure. Now hurry up and go get yourself a new LMIA. And if you can't, then um, then you still are reaching the same end of the road. Well, we saw that in the, in the uh, agricultural worker program as well, where you would see people, the, the solution, if you are being exploited by Canadian standards, you can complain, they will terminate the employer's ability to hire the foreign worker and send you back to Mexico. Right. Does it help you? Where you can then work on at Mexican standards for Mexican wages, <laughs> which to most workers is not a uh, an attractive option, right. right? And the same thing being sent back to the Philippines or wherever it is, is not a, uh, you know, and, and so it's a question of saying the alternative is you're going to terminate the employment, which is effectively what will happen if you go and complain, is that they're going to cancel the, they're going to cancel the work permit and the LMIA yeah. because you're no longer going to be able to work for this employer. Um, and and then, even for that privilege, you have to prove that you were actually exploited. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think this is a really interesting conversation in terms of this framework legislation that just came out by announced by the province of mm-hmm. BC. For called sure. the, what is it called? The Protecting Temporary Foreign yeah. Workers Act. Yeah. Um, first off, it's incredibly broad. Like they define foreign workers, anyone who's not Canadian, who might be performing work in Canada, not a bad thing to leave it really broad. And they're working on narrowing that definition, but I was looking at it just earlier today and these very points are covered, whether or not it'll actually do anything about the issue. Like for example, 
retributions on the employee if they come forward and complain are prohibited specifically. Mm-hmm. And they may even, I don't think that's part of the offenses, but they're definitely enumerated as they're, they are prohibited. But what does that mean in reality for that vulnerable employee who isn't being paid what they were promised or the working conditions are not what they were promised? So it has good intentions. My personal view um, participating in consultations about that legislation, just thinking about it, is that you have to sort of, there's push and pull factors, right? People are always going to want to come to Canada, mm-hmm. but you have to sort of kill the market, like to, like, it, not with legislation, but make it less attractive um, to either, like, invest all that money that you were talking about, Deanne, and bringing the worker over, um, find ways that maybe Canadians can be hired, maybe that means increasing the wage, maybe you pay more for blueberries, like, I don't know that we can, maybe we can minimize some of it but I don't think we can eliminate all this abuse with legislation because it's just going to go in another direction Mm -hmm. so it's interesting looking at what the province of BC is trying to do which is filling a gap that the federal compliance regime has not been able to address by being local on the ground with dealing more with employment standards Mm -hmm. and having investigators have increased abilities to investigate but again, skeptical. I don't know if I'm quite as jaded as you are, cynical, but yeah. you see more of that side. I just see the you know, legislation rolling out year after year, promising to fix everything, and it doesn't really make that much of a difference other than more paperwork for the people who are involved in the sector. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not convinced. I think that there's an underlying tension that's never or that's not going to be resolved as long as you have people who are working for a dollar a day in large swaths of the world and people here want to get paid, you know, 18 or $20 an hour, uh, there's going to be a tension um, between the people who are willing to come here to work on whatever can, in whatever conditions uh, and the people in the rest of the world or in, in large parts of the world who um, would love to be able to come and work here even at a fraction of the wages that that, uh, that we pay. And so that tension is kind of inherent in this situation of global inequality. And then on a micro scale, you end up with this tension between employers and other people who are like, I'd like to have $3 blueberries uh, and I'd like to be able to have somebody come in and pick my blueberries uh, at a reasonable you know, or what I consider to be a, a lower wage. And there's that tension from the employers who want workers who will do these jobs and the Canadian workers who don't want the depression of, uh, of the wages. Right. And I, and think, I think that tension is just inherent. I think I don't, there, there's the one thing that this new legislation does propose that they could do some um, good work with is getting rid of the middle layer of people who are making money off of the people who do want to come here from overseas and who are willing, like Peter's describing, um, and then the ultimate employers that are offering goods and services to the public or need their children taken care of. And I think that if you look at the legislation, I don't know if we're there yet, Steve, in our podcast, but um, a lot of the meat of it is talking about getting licensed to be a recruiter. Um, what happens if you charge an employee for a job? There's already legislation on that, but here the penalties are increased. There's jail time. There's huge monetary penalties. And I'm looking forward to some of that being actually enforced and seeing a few of those cases come out. Um, and maybe that will kill the market. I don't know if market's the right word, but it, I think it is. Like there's a whole industry operating. It's been around for years. Uh-huh. And I think it's just gotten worse recently. Well, I think there is a market and I think the market knows about it because you'll hear competitors to companies where abuse is more widespread complain how hard it is to compete. Um, but going back to what we mean by abuse, I think 
there's a distinction, at least in the law, between, say, the person who would rather work minimum wage picking blueberries in Canada as opposed to earning a dollar an hour abroad, but the farm or company uh, complying with their contract versus what and whether that's exploitive or not because it's below Canadian standards versus what the law is targeted at, which is even in that context, uh, people when they get here not being paid or working more hours than they should. And I think if the even if the federal law, ignoring the provincial one, had more teeth and actions were more targeted, there would be an impact. Like for a lot of these farms, not being able to hire foreign workers because of the competitive edge of labor is pretty much the end of their ability to do business. And with the BC, um, the BC law, which would require that people who hire foreign workers have a license, uh, losing that license for a lot of companies, once word spreads and if it ever actually gets enforced, I think would do a lot, not for caregivers where it's just a one-off family and they probably think, my kid's you know, 15 now, I don't need a caregiver. But in other contexts, I think if the law were enforced, targeted and proper, um, it could dent the breaking of contracts that the government determined, I guess, wasn't, didn't meet the definition, the narrow definition of exploitive, which is at least a start to addressing this problem. Um, Peter, you had a case where a company was charged criminally for foreign worker exploitation. I don't know if you want to summarize that or... Sure. I mean, well, and it wasn't, they, they weren't charged criminally for exploitation of the foreign workers. What, what it was, was in the trucking industry. Um, and this was, these were cases that are before uh, these, this change. So that a lot of the underlying activity took place before the changes that, Steve, you were talking about in the regulations, um, where they brought, through, brought in in 2014, early 2014, late 2013, early 2014, there were changes the regulations to create administrative monetary penalties for different types of breaches of the labor market impact assessment regime. And so these these are cases that predate that or a large part of what happened predated that. But what was happening in the trucking industry um, was that the government, uh, to apply, I think, uh, last week or, or last time, we, there was some explanation about this idea of prevailing wage. Well, the government has a view that a prevailing wage has to be framed in terms of hours, uh, an hourly wage. And the trucking industry doesn't actually pay by the hour. The, the standard form of payment in for large parts of the trucking industry is to pay by the mile. In other words, truckers get paid, Canadian truckers get paid by the mile. Um, so you get 40, 50, 60 cents a mile, whatever it is, depending on the type of trucking, depending on the routes and all that kind of thing. And so what a number of companies in the trucking industry were doing is that they couldn't get labor market in, they couldn't apply for labor market LMIAs without setting out a, an hourly wage. And so what the, this company, uh, Harlan's did, was they, on the application for the government, put the prevailing wage and then turned around and paid their truckers by the mile. 
In other words, they and they had there were uh, you know it would appear that there were contracts signed that uh, that where it was clear that everybody was being paid forty cents a mile, which was within the prevailing industry wage. And if you read the decision from the provincial court, the judge accepts that this was within the prevailing wages for the industry, but it wasn't the prevailing wage that had been set by ESDC as a general hourly prevailing wage. And so there was a clear misrepresentation by the company. And so the company had pled guilty to misrepresentation. And one of the issues in the case had to do with how this should be punished or, or what the and one of the, the issues that actually went to appeal and, and was just dismissed by the, the, the BC Court of Appeal on some technical technical grounds that don't really aren't really pertinent for our purposes. But the question what had happened was that the court ordered restitution to the workers as if they had lost the difference between what they would have gotten paid under this fictional prevailing wage. So this fiction that was presented to the government to be able to get the the uh, um, the LMIAs, the company was they had gone back and done a forensic audit of all the hours that were set out because truckers keep track of their hours for regulatory purposes on what are called trip sheets. And so they had had an accountant go back through all the trip sheets, add up all the hours, add the vacation and the holiday pay and everything else that should have been paid. And over the course of the two or three years that this had been going on with 30 foreign workers, it came out to some $350,000. And so the court ordered restitution, which is going to be paid, oddly enough, to these foreign workers. And so the foreign workers are going to get this what essentially is is arguably a windfall that the Canadians and permanent residents who were working for the same company are not going to get because they were just working at 40 cents a mile, which was the standard in the industry. What became evident in the course of working on this case was that this was not an uncommon And in fact, when the decision first came down, there were a number of people from the trucking industry who have gotten in touch with our our office and others, but in in particular with my clients, um, because, and and I know that there are at least two other prosecutions that were similar that were going on at the same, that have been going on, um, and that they had been pursuing other companies on the same basis, but they were charged criminally under section 124 of the uh, of the act for breaching the act and for misrepresentation and so that's where the the criminal charges came in there were some allegations you know that there were other allegations that were under like the, there were a couple of the workers who had come forward and complained in this particular case but they never pursued those allegations in in front of uh, either the employment standards or in, in a civil suit. And that wasn't the basis for the decision in the criminal courts. In, in other words, there was no um, there was no finding of underlying exploitation. What there was was this misrepresentation to the government um, and the government's insistence, which the trucking industry has, has a lot of trouble with, is that this was a bureaucratic, uh, in, in my, just everything that I've seen, I've seen no justification from the government as to why you couldn't apply for an LMIA on an out on a miles 
uh, like on a, on a mileage basis, when that is the prevailing wage, that is the standard way of paying in the industry. But it seems to be a question of bureaucratic convenience. That the, the reason for this requirement is one of because otherwise, when you're trying to count the apples and oranges and compare the different industries, if you don't convert it into hourly wages, you can't compare it to. Uh, other industries, which I could see if this was an industry like, you know, the picking of, sh of morel mushrooms or something that's that or abalone or, you know, collecting abalone or something highly specialized. But, you know, when you're talking about the trucking industry, you know, this seemed to be a pretty major industry. Um, so in terms of the people in the industry, they had a lot of trouble understanding the gravity of the of the offense. Um, but the, the consequences for the company were quite significant. And so, so that's essentially, it, that would have played out differently in the AMP regime, but the amounts probably wouldn't have been that different uh, when you actually sit and do the calculations of multiple, like when you're dealing with multiple workers over lengthy periods of time with multiple. Uh, and so because the way that the, the, the administrative monetary penalties work is you have this schedule that for each breach adds up and it adds up very quickly. So like once you start having multiple workers and multiple breaches, um, you start getting into the tens and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars very quickly. It caps at a million, a million per year. Yeah. And, and the I, size of the company is also factored yeah. in. Can I just bring in the Donkin case quickly? Because mm -hmm. it's really interesting illustration. So the Donkin case was from this year. Um, and the, it's rooted back, <clears throat> I think, to 2015, 2016. So during the new regime of administrative monetary penalties, and their their penalty was two hundred thirty thousand dollars. I think they may have their it may have been reduced somewhat after the back and forth, but in the end, it stands. And what they did is they brought in some Americans um, to do some underground mining under a labor market impact assessment, and they had advertised a certain wage. So an LMIA, like we talked about last time, requires advertising to the Canadian. Um, <clears throat> which has to include the exact wage being offered. So the workers that ultimately came and they were Americans were actually paid significantly more than what had been advertised for whatever reasons. And we all know in the real world that sometimes happens. Someone does really well on the job or they want to, they're going to, they're threatening to leave. So you give them a raise, whatever the reasons were, I don't know. And that's not in the decisions, but um, they were being paid significantly more than the LMIA. This was discovered. I don't know the exact number of workers, um, and the fine was over $200,000 for overpaying workers. And um, their name is on the public list, which now has close to 90 employers. I think that's the largest um, AMP to date. It, I think so. I'm not sure if anyone else has looked at it recently, but it's pretty big, $230,000 for overpaying. And these are cool. fines to the government, just to be clear. What yeah, it this one is not restitution to the employees. This is directly yeah. to the government. And why uh, representing the employer of a caregiver once who said, well, what if I just don't want to go along with this inspection? Like, I don't need a caregiver anymore. What what happens? And the, I thought, that's a, all right, I'll ask the ESDC inspector. And they made it clear, going back to your point of it, Peter, that uh, it's not hard for them to get to those maximum fines when someone's not going along with the inspection. Yeah. Even for an individual. Even well, for an individual. Well, you're still just you're a small employer, but you can still max out it. Uh, well, it's just the way that each breach would be calculated individually. So in that case, um, the issue actually involved her going on mat leave right. and not properly doing a record of employment and kind of what Deanna would like, 
Deanna was talking about, which is people who, well, they want to maintain on paper that the person's mm-hmm. still working for immigration purposes, but they're not really working. And then eventually the, but in that you have people who are no longer working the hours, people whose working condition, like there's all sorts of individual breaches that they can add together to get a significant penalty. Um, I think also we should discuss, uh, going back to the high wage, some of the other issues that large companies faced. And I think it's relevant to show just where resources are being possibly misallocated. Uh, the amount of hours that it seems the department, certainly at CBA conferences and in audits spent on timesheets. I don't know if anyone dealt with the... I have. You've I can with, speak to So that. maybe you can yeah. speak to the timesheets so, um, audit issue. So, and, and this would go to, this is a perfect example. So there's a senior person making about $500,000 a year under the employment, this is a real case, under the employment standards legislation, um, we discovered he was required to keep a track of his hours. I think it's section 28 of the Employment Standards Act. So we, you know, I think the common misconception is that if you're doing senior manager work, if you're the CEO, you don't need to keep your hours. No, that's not correct. You don't have to pay um, someone who's in a managerial position overtime, but they still actually, under the books, have to track their hours. And so... By track their hours, you mean record what time they start, what time they start. Number of hours per day. It's on the books. And so I discovered this in two ways. One was um, through an audit where he, they had not, he had not tracked his hours. He travels a lot for work. And this is the guy who makes $500,000 a year. Um, and so we had to, we went back and forth with the inspector. We had to ultimately do an affidavit from someone who sits next to him saying these are his, <laughs> these are his general hours of work. This is the time that he arrives. This is the time that he departs. So that in order to close off the inspection and the other piece that this was a hot topic, you mentioned at a CBA conference where government is kind enough to come and speak to us. And this, this went on for 20 minutes. There was a discussion in a room full of 300 people where the example of a senior manager was given and ESDC's view was that, no, you have a duty to keep timesheets and yes, we're going to ask you about it. So there wasn't, there was a disconnect between you know, what, like, as you were saying, this allocation of resources, why are inspectors spending time um, inspecting people who are making $500,000 a year about their timesheets? Once again, and they who is this legislation? Like, who is this regime serving? Like, it's very difficult to answer, especially in that. I don't know. Well, and it's not exactly protecting anyone in no. that case. I mean, at least the example you gave before, I can see why the overpaying of the workers right. is, is an issue because. In the labor market. Well, well, no, but I mean, like you, you, if you had advertised the position, like let's yeah. say you, you advertise a position at fifty thousand, then you turn around and pay people sixty thousand. Sure. Well, if you had advertised it at sixty thousand to Canadians, maybe Canadians would have taken those jobs, which is part of the point sure. of the program, yeah. right? So I, I get the rationale for that, but in this case, I'm like, did they even give a rationale? Like, yeah. is there? No, and they weren't penalized in the end because we put together an affidavit. Well, no, but it's non-compliance so, with the Employment Standards Act. It is. So I called the so Employment, they could have, they could have the employment Standards Act. Like, if the employment because lawyers, standards, lawyers don't get paid overtime, but we're exempt from the act. But I'm just saying, like, why if if you if <laughs> overtime doesn't matter, why does it matter how many hours you work? Well, even I there though, it's a record keeping. So I, yeah. you know what? Even though we're exempt from hours, I'm trying to remember my call with the Employment Standards Branch because I. At the height of this, wondered well, maybe they're just misinterpreting. And the Employment Standards Act has a record-keeping provision 
where pretty much everyone at the company is supposed to track what time they start, what time they stop, regardless of what type of pay. It's a simple math answer, and it's to make sure that um, no one falls below minimum wage. In my case, even if you work 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it, he made $500,000 a year. It still worked out to $150,000. Oh, that's the other reason, too, to track so it's excessive to make sure, hours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you can't so work excessive pieces. hours, so employees have to be yeah. tracking start and stop to make sure that even if they're on an annual salary, they're still not working excessive hours. But Does this I think mean when I go below minimum wage on a legal aid contract, I can go after them? Sorry, you're I don't exempt. Mean. <laughs> you're exempt, you're a lawyer. Yeah. Oh, nice okay. try. <laughs> Articling student, maybe though, I don't know, be careful. Yeah. There is a really strict, even where there doesn't appear to be a justif, like a rationale behind. Well, the rationale is that uh, for a lot of these that the law says that they have to have offered employment that's substantially the same. We acted for a company once that got fined because they had hired someone to be a logger and the and the logger wanted some training in how to be a vehicle mechanic. And, they, and this was in uh, the Young Professionals program. So there is no labor market test. There's no wage requirements. And they gave this person a training in being a mechanic and they got fined because they were supposed to, under their contract, even though it wasn't a requirement of the program, they were only supposed to be doing logging, not vehicle mechanic work. And it just goes back to then who is this all intended to benefit? Um, so how do you think, and I know that uh, Mira, you're doing, well, I guess we're both doing a bit of consulting to the BC government on the new laws. Like what do you think are the new, yeah, the new, like the regs when it comes out, how do you think this can be targeted to actually protect the vulnerable foreign workers who are being exploited in terms of they aren't getting paid. The six month open work permit doesn't sound like it's sufficient. Do you think it would help if there was like an an amnesty after, so they do their immigration application and then they come forward and say, look, I told you I was getting paid this much in my express entry or my caregiver application. I wasn't. And an amnesty on misrep in cases where they, can kind of say they're going after the bigger problem, which are the employers, if you agree that's the bigger problem and not employees lying in their immigration? Like, do you think? But, I mean, I think traditionally we've seen more consequences for, uh, I mean, it's the same thing with illegal work, right? If you look at all of the consequences for illegal work, we see very few prosecutions, right? So, you know, of employers. And even when, when you see consequences for illegal work, 99 times out of 100, the consequence for illegal work is removal of the, of the foreign worker, mm-hmm. right? So when, you, when they do a, a workplace raid that, you know, and I deal, with, I deal with these cases all the time, they result in a dozen exclusion orders where the, the foreign workers are excluded and kicked out of the country. So the illegal foreign workers are kicked out of the country. Yeah. And they're, you know, excluded for a year, but their chance of ever coming back are are, are almost zero or very low. Um, And uh, we see no prosecutions. And so when you look at the... So why is that? Because we're not regulatory versus criminal standard, or because we're not serious about getting rid of the black market. I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to: is that are we actually like? There's not a focus on actually getting rid of 
the uh, the black market of illegal work. And so, and, and I'm not saying, you know, what, whether or not you feel that that's a, a policy priority, but for me, when you talk about vulnerable workers, most of them are not the ones who are working on LMIAs, right? Like, as in those programs are, you know, like those, those are the people who are, uh, they're, they're definitely people who are being exploited within the, that context, but the ones who are truly vulnerable are the illegal workers, the, the workers who are working without work permits and who are working illegally. And the underground economy drives mo- most of the, you know, if, if you want to see the costs go up in the restaurants and, uh, you know, for, for different products in the, in the, uh, in the grocery stores and elsewhere in Vancouver, do away with the underground economy and or in the healthcare sector or they think like for for in-home care if the issue is that no canadians will take the job because who can live in vancouver on 14.50 an hour well there's a lot there's a decision to not provide that subsidy to families to be able to pay like a living wage to in-home caregivers and therefore you know it is the foreign workers who are willing and able to accept those jobs. Um, and so, again, it's a self-perpetuating um, system right now. Um, but as Peter says, when the enforcement is happening, it's happening against the worker. And so um, it just continues to, to roll like that. But at the individual level, like, do you, I mean, I, I, maybe it is a policy like level of, okay, we're just not going to go after employers, but there, I, I, I have a hard time believing that it's just the individual CBSA officer or prosecutor going, you know what, I don't want to touch the black market. Like, is it that they think the standard is too high for criminal prosecution, that the consequences will be too low anyway? There's, there's not a motivation. Uh, there's not the level of motivation to go after that type of criminal behavior, right? And, and th- those are those are prosecutorial and enforcement decisions that are made that it's not a priority. Th- that and, and whether it should or shouldn't be a priority is an interesting question, right? Viewed as a victimless crime, I guess, to use a lay term, like in that situation, okay, well the foreign worker's now gone. It's not a victimless crime. But is that why it's not prosecuted? Or can I also like you know, there's already the mechanism set up within CBSA for enforcing against foreign nationals. Like, you just don't renew their work permits or you, you know, so you just, you know, executing removal. That's part of the machinery. That's just, you know, it's all set up. But in a situation where it's a matter of um, bringing, um, bringing charges against the employer, like that sort of it's a whole other initiative, I think. I don't think it's resourced for that, is it? Well, no, but I mean, when you look at workplace raids, for example, that, that takes resources, that takes planning, and that takes motivation, yeah. right? In the sense of saying when you're, when you're going to go in and do a workplace raid or if you're going to go in and do auditing to see if students are showing up for their classes or if you're going to do it, – it's a question of what do you prioritize – Um, But once they've done that and the students or the workers are no longer doing that thing, um, the idea of then having to um, address the bigger issue is like another whole initiative where from the perspective of the enforcer, well, they've dealt with the issue in the sense that it's no longer occurring. But the reality is, is that because of the of the global, like like the context within which we are, we exist, right? In the sense that you have workers in other parts of the world 
who are getting paid a pittance compared to what they can make illegally in Vancouver, right, or in Canada in general, there's always going to be a demand if, if there are employers here. Now, I'm not saying that you should, whether you should or shouldn't do anything about that, that's that's more those are policy and, and philosophical questions that I think are, are beyond they're not really legal questions. And I guess that's where, where for me it's a question of saying, well, you know, what is what do you do to have this artificial bubble of human rights utopia within Vancouver and that, you know, if you still want to have two ninety-nine blueberries, you just import them from Mexico. Right. So the workers are there being exploited and that's okay. Or that the workers who are making my, you know, my cheap pants and shoes in India, as long as we keep them there, then the exploitation's okay. But if they're going to make shoes here, then we should protect them and have other labor standards. Uh, sure. I, I mean, I, I guess I, is that, it's better if you don't see it. It shouldn't be happening in our backyard. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe those are our priorities for us. I can see the, the motivation around that stuff. But the reality is, is that we're complicit in, for sure. in, in labor standards all over the world that are, you know, like if you I'm talk about... I'm you're a fan of President Trump's <laughs> Me and Trump are... <laughs> like this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, on that abrupt note, it's after five. Come on, Peter, to bring up it. We have to mark our timesheets. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. We got to mark our timesheets. Right. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Taking Don't off because otherwise the employment standards branch yeah. will. Okay, perfect. All right.